Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. I have a question for you this morning. Do any of you have any fears? I would imagine that the answer to that is yes, uh, if you're going to be honest about it, uh, that there is something that when you think about it, it grabs a hold of your heart and, and won't let go. We all have fears. We all have things that we have to face, things that if we don't can become a stronghold in our life and hold us back from living a full purpose that God has for us. So I did a little bit of research because that's what I do. On the main things this last year that Americans said they were afraid of. Are you ready for this? So what they did is they put it on a scale, kind of a scale from like zero to three, and then they would kind of take an average is what they would do. Does that make sense? Um, And so I just want to list a few things here. In terms of ranking, the number one thing that people indicated that they were afraid of the most is a loved one dying. And that came at an average of 94. Or loved ones becoming seriously ill, which was right behind it. That was at a 93. Now again, this is for the United States. Number three was mass shootings. Scored an 89. Not having enough money for retirement. That came in at an 80. Right behind it was terrorism at a 79. Corrupt government officials. That scored pretty high at a 78. Then it became personally becoming seriously ill, which, by the way, tied corrupt government officials at a 78. Hate crimes came in at 77. High medical bills at a 76. Uh, A car crash came in at a 72. Snakes came in at a 71. Anybody out there on the snake list? (laughs) You got your terrorists, high bills. Let's don't forget the snakes, (laughs) right? Identity theft, by the way, came in at a 65. Uh, let Let me just give a couple of other things that Americans talked about. Unable to pay the rent or the mortgage. Corporations influencing the government. Uh, robbery and burglary, never being able to pay off their debt, uh, being physically assaulted, the government tracking their personal, the government came in twice on this list, my friends. Is the government tracking my personal data? I'm afraid of that. As a matter of fact, Americans were more afraid of the government tracking their personal data than they were being alone. Interesting. I know you were wondering where spiders came in at the list. They were number 28, just so you wanted to know, which was higher than whether or not you were going to lose your job. I thought that was interesting. (laughs) Would you rather have spiders or a job? I mean, no spiders, obviously. (laughs) The stock market crashing came in at a 52, and right behind it was communism. All right. If you want to know how the list rounded out, because I know you do, What were the, in terms of number 40 and 41, which I didn't give you everything, what was it? And the answer at number 40 were ghosts. And the answer at number 41 was being abducted by aliens. (laughs) Those were the things that were on the hearts of Americans. The things that we fear, right? Now, I don't know. I listed some of the stuff. I didn't list everything, but I wanted you to have a good feel for how your fellow Americans, when you walk through the mall and you're doing your shopping this Christmas season, I want you to wonder, is that a spider person over there? Or is that an alien person over there? 
Don't know, you might have to ask. These were some of the things that came out on the list. One of the most repeated commands in the Bible, just so you know, is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For example, we find it four times in the Christmas story in Matthew and Luke. You would see this manifestation of something that would be pretty fetching, an angel. And the angel would say, do not be afraid. Four times in the gospels you see this. And so when you think about this Christmas season that we celebrate, we talk about hearing from a God that says, do not be afraid, but the one reason that he gives for not being afraid, and you see this through the arc of scripture is because I'm with you. Don't be afraid because I'm with you. Now I've got two really good parents and I can remember sometimes sitting in critical care and not knowing how things were going for me. Oh, actually I knew how things were going for me. They weren't going well. That's why I was in critical care. But I could look and see my mom or my dad or my mom and my dad. And I just had this sense, everything is gonna be fine. Everything is going to be fine. I have had as a pastor over 20 whatever years I've been a pastor, I've literally sat in hospitals with people who knew that they were looking death in the face. And they would say, everything is gonna be just fine. There was just this tremendous sense of the presence of God and how that changed everything for them. God is with you. And so don't be afraid. And yet we struggle with fear, don't we? I wanna survey some scripture for you this morning about some of the most famous people in scripture. And you find this, this theme that goes throughout. Let me, let me give you one. And it, it goes to this point. God is with us when everything is going wrong. God is with us when everything is going wrong. One of the greatest stories in the Bible is the story of Joseph in Genesis. And in Genesis 39, six, it says that Joseph was well-built and handsome. This is a guy that never missed leg day. Now he, he was ripped. Well-built and handsome. As a young man, you might know the story, God gave Joseph dreams indicating that one day his 11 brothers and even his parents would bow down to him. I told my two older brothers, I had a similar dream the other day. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Uh, because his father heavily favored him, the dreams, as you know, how brothers and sisters and whatnot are, it added some fuel to the fire. They became very jealous as a result and they hated him. And in fact, they wanted to kill him. By the way, if you're walking up and going, God has found me highly favored in his eyes, that's pretty much a crash course on them feeling that way too, right? The oldest brother is a guy named Reuben. And he convinced his brothers, remember they wanted to kill him. They convinced his brothers, he's like, well, let's don't kill him. But instead, here's a better idea. Let's sell him into slavery to pass along as the traitors go by. I mean, you think your family's dysfunctional. Think of these people. That's hardcore, don't you think? So what does Joseph do? Joseph ends up a slave in Egypt. And you imagine in this moment, he's sitting there going, but I remember that dream, you know? And that dream looks, well, it looks kind of stupid right now. I don't think that's what's going to happen. For Joseph, everything has gone wrong. In fact, it's hard for him to imagine that things could go any worse at all. And then you read Genesis 39, verses two through four. It says, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. Man, there's a turn in the script, don't you think? Here, we're gonna sell you into slavery. Here's this great position of privilege. Why? You saw it twice in those two verses. The Lord was what? With him. God is with him. 
Now, things are going great, right? But hold on, because then it goes all wrong again for this guy. Because Joseph was well-built and handsome. We already saw that in chapter 39. He's ripped and he's handsome. Potiphar's wife gets the hots for him. That's the way it says it in the Hebrew. (laughs) And when Joseph... When Joseph refused her, she accused him of attacking her, literally sexually assaulting her. And Potiphar has him tossed into prison. So this is one of those moments where it's like you're out of the frying pan and you're into the fire. You're like, make up your mind, Lord, what you want for me. And what happened? And it tells you, says God was with him. And he ends up going from slavery to prison, from bad to worse. And then you see this in Genesis chapter 39, verses 20 to 23. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all that they held in prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. He's the head of the prisoners now, people. And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. I bring that story up to remind you of a very important and profound truth. Even while you're going through very difficult times, God is what? With you. He's with you. There's a second truth that I want you to mark into your heart this morning, and it's this. God is with us when he calls us to a new challenge. God is with you when he calls you to a new challenge. Sometimes life is going along just fine and then God interrupts our comfort and he calls us to a new thing and turns our world upside down. One great example of this is a guy named Moses. Moses, born a Hebrew among slaves in Egypt, adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter, raised as a prince of Egypt. Sounds like it's going pretty well, right? I mean, you can imagine dinner was probably great. But he knew his roots. And one day he killed an Egyptian overseer who was abusing a Hebrew slave. And when Pharaoh heard about it, Moses had to run for his life, escaping to the deserts of Midian, where he married and settled down as a shepherd for the next 40 years, looking after the sheep. That's quite a wait, don't you think? How many of you would like to wait 40 years? Exactly, nobody, all right? And one day Moses is out there and he's tending his sheep, doing his job, minding his own business like he's done for, oh, 40 years when God shows up. And there's a burning bush. And when Moses turns aside to check it, God speaks to him and he says, take off your shoes, you are on holy ground. And then God says this to him, I've seen the misery of my people. I've heard their cries for help and I've come down to help them. How many of you in that moment would be like, that's awesome. God's coming down to help. So far, so good. But then this is what God follows up and says. I have seen, I have heard, I've come to help. And then God says, so Moses, I want you to go. Well, that's probably not what he thought the end of the sentence was gonna be. Especially when it's, I have come to help, now you go. But that's what he said to Moses. Can you imagine what Moses probably thought in that moment? You're gonna do a much better job, Lord, if you just handle this yourself. Have you ever thought something like that? I just kind of pass it off to him. I mean, this moment probably messed up his day a little bit. But you see this in Exodus chapter three, verse 11. But Moses says to God, who am I? Uh, Who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? There's gotta be somebody better than me for an assignment like this. I mean, you want me to go back to, to Egypt 
You want me to take on a guy that they worship? They literally believed that the Pharaoh was the incarnation of the god Horus, who held everything in balance. You want me to go get up in his face? That's just not gonna go well. You might would feel the same way if you were Moses. He's the most powerful man in the world. I'm a shepherd. He runs the most advanced civilization in the world. I run a flock of sheep. You ever felt like that before? He's in control of a mighty Egyptian army with horses and chariots. I control the dog that controls the sheep. One of these is just not like the other. And so Moses is feeling like this. We don't need to kid ourselves here. You got the wrong guy. I'm just not it. And he even has this great excuse. I even has speech impediment. I'm gonna walk up and talk to this guy. I'm gonna be like, and then he's gonna make fun of me. And what you want actually isn't going to happen. This is the way that Moses is looking at. And then in Exodus chapter three, verse 12, God looks at him and this is all that he says. I will be with you. I will be with you. Do you think that Moses feared Pharaoh? Uh, the answer is probably yes. He had already, I mean, had tried to kill him. On a very human level, he knew that he was no match for this guy. And so he was afraid. The only thing that God gives him in this moment is a promise. I am with you. He does not spell out what that looks like. He does not spell out how. He does not say, by the way, just over this hill, I've got a billion angels that are going to come to your rescue and help. There's none of that. It is I'm with you. So what God does is he interrupts Moses' comfortable life and calls him to a new challenge. Have you ever been there in your life, my friends? And it's frightening. Something that's over his head. And when Moses asks, who am I? God's answer isn't, well, let me tell you who you are. It's let me tell you who I am. Just let me tell you who I am. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to a place where you heard God calling you beyond your comfort zone and says it's time for a change in your life? a task that is bigger than who you are. It's literally God-sized. And in that moment, did you sit there and go, who am I? We've probably all been there at some point. Or even felt like this, it's too much for me. And then you hear God saying, uh, even still, I want you to go and I'm gonna be with you. You remember this other story? There's a guy in the Old Testament, his name is Goliath. Uh, he's a hoss. He also didn't miss leg day like Joseph before him, right? Always at the gym. When you think of a Goliath, you can think of something like a situation or a circumstance that looms very large in your life. And when you think about it, honestly, it just overwhelms you. This guy, if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, it would say he's around seven feet tall. Some of your interpretations say around nine feet tall. Either way, he's a hoss, right? If you look, he wears over 100 pounds of armor. He's a giant. It's so big of a problem that it intimidates you when you think about it, when you're looking at it. The, the way that it describes the Israelites in 1 Samuel 17 is they saw Goliath and they trembled in fear, like to the point that they could not physically move. A giant of a problem. What does it do? Well, it can create a lot of emotional instability. You can't control your emotions because frankly, Goliath is controlling you. I don't know what your Goliath is. I just know you've got it. It may not be a seven foot something guy standing in front of you. It could be medical. It could be relational. It could be just circumstances in your life. It could be economic. It could be emotional. 
emotionally, you're just broken and it's bigger than you. See, the problem, the problem isn't just that Goliath is huge. It's that Goliath keeps coming back. If you were to read 1 Samuel, he keeps coming back in front of the army for 40 days. Keeps coming back. You ever feel like that with your Goliath? It's not like it's there on a Tuesday. It's you wake up on a Wednesday and you go, good grief, it's still there. And then Thursday and then Friday for 40 days, this guy stands up in front. Here's the point, your Goliath, it's not gonna leave you alone. It's not gonna go away. Goliath has gotta be faced. Goliath has gotta be addressed. Because Goliath stands between the promises that you read in the Bible and the circumstances that you are facing, or at least that's what he wants you to think. And then at this point in the story, enter a teenager named David. That guy. How did he kill Goliath? And the answer is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 26 and 36. You'll see a repetition here. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who's the uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then in verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, talking about himself. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. Did you see something repeated there? He calls him an uncircumcised guy. And why did he say that? is because David saw something through a spiritual perspective that apparently the rest of the army just could not see. This guy does not have the Lord on his side, and we do. And that's the first principle, to defeat the Goliath that's in your life, because I promise you have at least one, you have to start with a spiritual perspective. Before a stone was ever thrown, David had a perspective on how Goliath was going to be beat. And he was absolutely right because circumcision was the sign of the covenant. And he's looking at the army of God and going, we have God. What else do we need? Let's go. Everybody else you just remember is standing there in what? Fear. Fear to the point that they won't move. I want to remind you of something, the significance of a covenant relationship with God this morning. And I like the way Tony Evans said it. He said, it's like an umbrella when you're in the rain. If you have it, you have a covering. That's what a covenant is. You have a covering. You possess it, so you're in it. However, if it isn't open, the covering does not cover you even though you possess the covering. Does that make sense? You might have an umbrella, but if it's not up, it's gonna pour down rain on you. He says, so until you open it, place yourself under it, you are not covered by the covenant. Here's what he went on to say. Many Christians are living like that. You're living uncovered because you don't have an umbrella. I mean, if you have Christ, you have the covenant. But it's like you got your umbrella and it's down at your feet rather than up over your head and it's just pouring down rain on you. And here's what he says. You have it, you just don't have the benefit of it because you're not working under it. You stepped outside of the protection of it. I mean, after all, the umbrella, it doesn't stop it from raining. It stops it from raining on you. That's what a covenant can do. That's what Jesus does for us. So David didn't see Goliath the way that other people did. Did you catch that? The issue was spiritual first, then it was rocks upside the head second. It was in that order. He just wasn't seeing it the way everybody else was seeing it. And by the way, neither was Saul. You remember the king? There's this beautiful part in 1 Samuel 17, verse 37, because he looks at this one guy that says, oh, I'll go, I'll go. And y'all can watch what the Lord will do. And Saul looks at David and he says this, 
the Lord will be with you. There it is again. And so, verse 40, he took off his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. He's like, let's go. Nobody else had been doing that before. So David had two things. He had God and he had a plan. He had God and he had the rocks. That was the plan, right? He had God and he had the rocks for the battle. Here's what you have to be reminded of this morning, though, is that you have to identify your Goliath. You have to call it what it is. And one of the things with fear is we look at the fear itself and we won't name it for what it is. And as a result, it's just got this stronghold over our life and nothing changes. Nothing changes. David says, I see the fear in the people. He's standing right there and it's time for the fear to die. Not to play with it. It's time for the fear to die. Friends, what is your Goliath this morning? You got it, but are you ready to name it? And then the second thing I want you to remember is to remind yourself of some important truths this morning. For example, Colossians 2.15, he, talking about Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he disgraced them publicly and he triumphed over them. What the enemy wants for you, for those of you that have Christ, what the enemy wants for you is to think that he has control over you. Colossians 2.15 is telling you he has none. All that he can do is give you the illusion that he has power, but Colossians 2.15 says that Christ took the power that away from him and is now given in Christ and you are under him. Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Here's what that means. I mean, to conquer means to be victorious over an adversary. What's your adversary? But he says, we are more than a conqueror. We're overwhelmingly victorious. I was looking at it like this. Imagine that there's a basketball game and the score ends up 140 to 30. Are y'all with me so far? 140 to 30. Now that is overwhelmingly victorious. Am I right? But you do catch, the other team did still score 30 points. They still scored just a few blows but you're still overwhelmingly victorious. Remember what Saul said to David before he went? He looks at him and he says, the Lord is with you. There's that theme again. And now here we are celebrating Christmas. We are celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We are celebrating that God in Christ was willing to put heaven behind him, that he was willing to come to this place so that he could put us and the broken world back together. And you remember the story? Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant, not by him. He decides to do what most men would do, which is to quietly end the marriage. But an angel appears in a dream and says, don't be afraid, because he was afraid to take her as his wife. He says, his child is from the Holy Spirit. And then you see in Matthew chapter one, verse 23, it says, the virgin will become pregnant, will give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you see this theme in scripture yet? Did you see it with Joseph? God is with you. It didn't mean it took all the circumstances away. God is with you. Did you see it with Moses? God is with you. Did you see it with David as he looked at Goliath? God is with you. You see it now with Joseph and Mary. God is with you. And I'm telling you today, right now, God is with us. God is with us. You will call him Emmanuel. And then he says, here's why this matters. Matthew 1, 21. He will save the people from their sins. 
He will take care of it. I give you all this word this morning because sometimes we just need to look at a promise. Sometimes what we don't need is a five-step action plan. Sometimes we just need to look in and say, what has God said to me in his word? And I'm gonna start holding on to that a whole lot more than the fears that I've been holding on to for a long, too long, too long. God is with me. That's a good word for today, isn't it? And I hope you're encouraged by it. Believers, for those of you that have accepted Christ, what I would hope today is that you operate under the covenant. You remember the umbrella? If you have Jesus, you've got a covenant. Quit putting it down by your feet and getting rained on. Live under the protection of his wisdom, his guidance, and his blessing. That's what the covenant is for. But there are some of you that don't have Christ today. I, I had to study for finals this week. You know, you think after you graduate from college and even uh, you finish your doctorate, you go, I'm done. And you're not. You know why? It's because you have children. You're not done. You're not done. You get to do sixth grade again and seventh grade again. And they're doing math differently today. So I'm like, wait, wait, wait. That's not how we did it. And then you get to relearn everything. It's awesome. Well, actually, I was working with one of my girls this week on finals, and uh, it was for uh, reading uh, a, a Christmas carol. So they were reading about Scrooge, which I know last week I told you objectively, the cartoon version of The Grinch is the best Christmas story of all time, and it's because it is. This is second place, all right? Well, we were re she had been reading through the book. We were preparing her for final exams. And there was this one part that really, I just thought, you know, that's a really cool image that Dickens creates here. And you probably know it. Jacob Marley. Jacob Marley. That's the best I can give you this morning. <laughs> you remember when he appears to Scrooge? You remember what he was wearing? He was wearing chains. But he wasn't just wearing chains. There were things that were connected to the chains. Ledgers. You remember, he was in business with Scrooge, right? And they had been basically ripping people off for a long, long time. They were very, very wealthy. But connected to the change were ledgers and cash boxes. Dickens even says there was an iron safe connected to the chain that as he, he would be dragging this thing. You remember this? Here, here's why this is so significant this morning. is because, and Dickens, I think, does this so well is because the very things that Jacob Marley thought would make his life the most meaningful and worth his pursuit were the very things that weighed him down for eternity. And he totally gave himself over to these things. That's the story. This is why Jesus is so significant is because he said, I have come to break these chains and to give you a whole different life. One that is abundant and it's free. See, the choice that we make, it's the most important choice that we will ever make. We either listen to Christ or we don't. We either listen to his offer or we don't. And the result is either freedom or it's chains. That's why Christmas that's what Christmas is really about. It's about a freedom for your soul from everything that has weighed you down. The question this morning is, are you gonna give yourself to Jesus? 
We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.